Well, we now come to God's Word, and so as you are able, please stand, and we'll be turning to our sermon text for today, Amos chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. Uh, The text will also be on the screens for you. Amos chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. As we come now uh, to your word, Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts to believe, uh, keep us from uh, distractions, help us to receive what it is that you have to say to us and be able to communicate it to others as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The hit musical, Hamilton, it portrays uh, King George as a narcissistic dictator, and for some good reason. Historians have spent many years trying to figure out what exactly was wrong with George. Clearly, he had some mental issues of one kind or another. He went through bouts of serious depression, falling down, having fits, this kind of thing. In the 1960s, a book came out called The Madness of King George that claimed that contemporary medical science concludes that actually what was wrong with King George was a genetic blood disorder known as porphyria. This, among other things, uh, explained the, the color of his urine. It was a compelling diagnosis, though in more recent years, other scientists have decided that in fact uh, King George suffered from more prosaic mental problems. He was what we would call bipolar or manic depressive. At any rate, because uh, King George's doctors really had no idea what was truly wrong with him, they treated him with all sorts of strange um, medical techniques, including arsenic, by the way, which I'm sure didn't help. The right diagnosis matters. Today... I would suspect that everyone 
agrees that our society is showing symptoms of disease. Massive divisiveness. Injustice. But why? On that, there is very little agreement. Everyone seems to agree that there are symptoms of a problem, but what the diagnosis is? In Amos's day, uh, similarly, there were widely agreed symptoms of social disease. It was a time of um, urbanization, wealth and prosperity. People were moving to the cities. But with that wealth and prosperity, there was a growing gap between the haves and the have-nots, between the wealthy and the poor. And there was widely common injustice. Amos is uh, preaching uh, in the north of the country. Almost certainly he's uh, basing his sermons in a uh, place called Bethel, which would have been the main northern religious center. And as he's preaching there, his first sermon, we just heard one excerpt from it read out, but really it's the first two chapters of the book. His first sermon begins in uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, by saying, The Lord roars from Zion. In other words, what Amos is saying is this is going to be a roaring sermon. You know, there are different kinds of sermons, aren't there? Some are very gentle and pastoral and some are very practical, applicable to daily life. And other sermons are sermons about justice and truth and righteousness. And all of Amos' ministry is about righteousness and justice. And his first sermon is a It's a roaring sermon. He's going to speak truth to power. And uh, as he preaches in that northern sanctuary of Bethel, I think we can imagine that the people listening to him were very enthusiastic. Uh, This wasn't going to be another boring sermon. It was going to have some oomph to it, some passion. He was going to roar. And what is more, their enthusiasm would have built as uh, he went through his sermon. Because basically what Amos is doing is he's picking out all the enemies of the people he's preaching to. And he's calling their enemies to account. Well, that's the kind of thing that people who listen to sermons like to hear. Uh, Those people... Are wrong. Yeah, you, you, you are wrong. You, you tell them, preacher. Those people are wrong. You tell them. And what is more, he uses a, a sort of rhetorical technique. Um, he repeats it throughout his sermon, uh, and it's a, uh, a refrain, like a poetic refrain, almost like a rap refrain. 
The refrain is for three transgressions and for four. Over and over again, he says that. For three and for four. For three and for four. Over and over again. It's a a kind of Hebrew parallelism. So Hebrew poetry had its own rules, as our poetry does today. One rule that was very common in Hebrew poetry is what we call parallelism. In other words, three matches three. But it's a kind of parallelism where he says, for three and for four. You see this also in the book of Proverbs. What, what Amos is saying is, enough is enough. No more. It's not for three and for three. It's for three and for four. Done. No more injustice. It's not quite the same, but um, for the children among us, you might be familiar. Perhaps your parents use this technique. I know we have, and I'm not sure it's an ideal technique, but it'll be familiar with, with many of us, I suspect. You know, your child is uh, it's ready for the time for them to go to bed, and the child doesn't want to go to bed, and so the parent will say, I'm going to count to three. One, two... Three, and the child still isn't moving, and so the parent says, four, and then they run. In other words, enough is enough. For three and for four, and he starts with one of their favorite enemies, Damascus. Verse three, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, or literally, I will not turn back. In other words, enough is enough. Why? Because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Uh, What Amos is pointing out is that Damascus people, when they conducted warfare, they did what we would call war crimes. They threshed them with threshing sledges of iron. Well, you can imagine the audience would have been pleased by that. For three and for four, you go get them, preacher. Lock them up. For three and for four, yes, Amos, lock them up. Go get Damascus. And then he comes to Gaza, verse 6. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Why? Because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. In other words, the issue with Gaza, uh, God is saying through his prophet Amos, is that Gaza uh, were slave traders. They carried a whole people into exile and sold them on to someone else. No more, says God, for three and for four. And the audience is chanting along with the rhythm for three and for four. Lock them up. You go get Gaza. Slave traders. It's disgusting. Then he moves on to Tyre, verse 9. 
For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Why? Because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. In other words, they also were slave traders. But what they done was even worse because they had traded into slavery their own family, their own relatives. Go get them, preacher. Finally, someone is calling out the evil. Finally, someone is bold enough to speak truth to power. For three and for four, lock em up. And then he comes to Edom, verse 11. For three transgressions of Edom and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Why? Because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. And his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. In other words, the issue with Edom was uh, that they had acted with animal-like ferocity. They had tore. The, the, the picture is of a, of a lion or a, a wild animal tearing at its prey perpetually. It's, it's like a particularly violent version of a Game of Thrones episode. You go get them, preacher, that's wrong. Then he comes to the Ammonites, verse 13. For three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Why? Because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. In other words, what Amos is saying here about the Ammonites is that they have conducted genocide. So if you want to not only take over a country, but make sure the people in that country never have a chance to turn against you in the future. And if you have no moral boundaries whatsoever, what you need to do is kill the people in the country and kill their children, because of course the children will enact revenge if you don't get them. And that even means killing the unborn children. Genocide. Well, thank goodness someone is calling out genocide. Those Armenians, it was a genocide. Well done, preacher, for calling it out. Finally. And then he comes to Moab. For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Why? Because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Now, this doesn't strike us as particularly bad, especially when compared to the rest of the injustices. But in the ancient world, the feeling was that your physical remains after you died, your, your bones, your body needed to be taken care of in the appropriate way because otherwise the fitting was your life after death was in jeopardy. They had a very close connection between the physical bones 
and what would happen after you died. And so if you wanted not only kill your enemies, but to ensure that they were dead in the life to come too, that they suffered eternal damnation, not just temporal death, and you burn their bones. It's a bit like today, there's one um, elite secret society in an uh, elite university in America that over many years had a skull of a Native American chieftain as its prized possession, and that skull was used in bacchanalian drunken revelry. Oh, finally, Amos is, there's a preacher who's finally calling out injustice. Good. You go get them. For three and for four. Lock them up. They would have been so pleased with this preacher. Actually, he's even more um, subtle about it. So he's deliberately boxing the points of the compass. So he starts northeast. It's Boston's fault. And then he goes uh, southwest. It's Los Angeles' fault, all those Hollywood types. That's the problem. And then he goes northwest. No, it's, it's San Francisco and the big tech. That's the problem, Silicon Valley. And then he goes uh, southeast. It's Miami and all the drug trade. That's the problem. And then in his most appealing rhetorical move yet, his coup de grace, he says, verse 4, chapter 2, for three transgressions of Judah... And for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Why? Because they have rejected the law of the Lord, have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. Judah, you see, was the southern kingdom. It was the Bible belt. That's where the law was. It was the law belt. And the northern kingdom would have been very pleased to hear this preacher go after the Bible Belt. Why? What have they done wrong? Because they're hypocrites. They have rejected the law of the Lord. They have the Bible, but they don't follow it. They've not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray. They are they're hypocrites. They're living a lie. They're not really following what the Bible says. They don't really love their neighbors as themselves. Bunch of hypocrites, those Bible Belt people. And the northern followers of God was just cheering him on for three and for four. Lock him up. And then, 
in a moment of great shock for his hearers. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. That is where he's preaching. Bethel, the religious center of Israel. Is it wrong, right, or woke? It's us. How could that be? Well, he tells them. Because, he says, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Their justice system is fundamentally corrupted by financial incentives. If you can't literally bribe a judge, you can get the kind of justice you want by paying enough fancy lawyers. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Because those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, there's there's so much money And there's so much poverty. And the rich turn aside from, they turn a blind eye to the poor. Because a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. In other words, what uh, Amos is saying is that Sexual immorality has got so bad that now they're not content with mere adultery. It has become so depraved that it is a scandal. Sexual morality has become... Gross. The sexual revolution has become profane. And you say, well, what about all the, uh, what about the religious uh, services and all the ceremonies at Bethel and all the worship that was going on in the, in the northern kingdom? Well, he'll get to that because, verse 8, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God, you notice how Amos is distancing the reality of their relationship, in the house of their God. They drink the wine of those who have been fined. In other words, yes, they're enthusiastic about going to religious services. They were frequent in their sacrifices and their altar. They turned their altars. They turned up to church. But 
when they went there, the very garments they're wearing is a sign, are a sign of the injustice of the poor. Their very clothes. And the wine they drink, the grapes, being harvested by impoverished and abused people. Well, they're not cheering now. Oh, for three and for four, uh, towards Boston? Yes, preacher, you go get Boston, those Harvard intellectuals who have compromised the gospel. The truth used to be there, but now they've turned their back on it. You call them out. Amen. Go get them. Yes, preacher, Los Angeles, Hollywood, with all the entertainment corruption that is spewing filth through the media. You go get them. Lock them up. Yes, preacher, Silicon Valley with the big tech dominating our social discourse and canceling religious freedom. You go get Silicon Valley preacher. Yes, Miami preacher with all the drug craziness. You go get them. You stand up to the cartels. Yes, preacher. Yes, preacher. You go get those religious hypocrites in the South who were all about slavery and the immorality of opposing the civil rights movement. You go get them, but us? We were the abolitionists. The Underground Railroad came through here. We, we, we have the Bible and we, we, we believe it, we preach it, us? Yes. Us. The injustices of our world these days are shocking. I um, there's there's a, a book of eyewitness accounts of how Ukrainian Jews were treated by the Nazis. This is one eyewitness account from the village of Yatushkov. It goes like this. I questioned the neighbors who were spared by some miracle and I discovered the whole truth. My kinsmen were tortured for a long time. The ghetto was set up near the bazaar sectioned off by a high barbed wire fence. People there were starving. On 20th August 1942, everyone was taken to the train station. They had to walk four kilometers and rifle butts were used to drive children and decrepit old people. Everyone was ordered to undress. I saw scraps of clothing and underwear. In order to economize on their bullets, the Nazis stood people four deep and then shot them. Those still breathing were buried alive. Small children were torn to pieces before being thrown into the pit. 
That is how they murdered my little Nayusinka. Other children, including my little girl, Adusia, were shoved into the pit and covered over with earth. Two months later, my wife, Manya, was among those who were taken away from the village of Yakushinsi. There was a concentration camp at Yakushinsi. The people there were humiliated, and then they were all murdered. There are two graves next to each other. In them lie 1,500 people, adults, old people, and children. But of course the challenge is that kind of righteousness and that kind of speaking is all too easy for us to speak. What we need is to stop virtue signaling and start being honest about our own sins. In fact, one of the greatest observers of the debauchery of injustice, a man called Alexander Solzhenitsyn, put it exactly uh, like that. These are his words. He said this, Solzhenitsyn, from his Gulag Archipelago, he said this, The line separating good and evil passes not through states, that is, different countries, not, nor between classes, nor between political parties either. But right through every human heart. Even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an uprooted small corner of evil. He goes on, thanks to ideology, the 20th century was fated to experience evil doing calculated on a scale in the millions. Alas, all the evil of that century is possible everywhere on earth. Yet I have not given up all hope that human beings and nations may be able, in spite of all, to learn from the experience of other people without having to go through it personally. What do we need to learn? Amos tells us, for three and for four, it's us. It's not them. It's me. And until you embrace that, you won't be able to forgive people. It's their fault. It's not, I've, what have I got to do with it? line between good and evil goes through every single human heart. And that is good news. You know why? Because on the third day he rose again. 
And that three was followed by a four, the giving of his spirit and new life and the renewed family of the church, which is the great hope for this world. Let's pray together. First, let's confess that corner of evil in our heart. Lord, help us to stop blaming other people and to start owning our own sin. Lord, that seems like a frightening thing to do, but you are the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. And so we come to you, knowing that on the third day you rose again, you sent your spirit, that all who repent and believe might have new life. And so we turn to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our friends, would you stand with me as we come now to the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace so that the whole earth might see his salvation and all nations his glory and all God's people said, Amen.